Stieber a 16-oson belül, lövés, gól! Gól! Eldölt a mérkőzés! If you were a Mogriov Foxy fan who'd fallen asleep 100 years ago and woken up on this very day, then you'd be waking up to a footballing landscape that was bizarrely similar to that of a bygone era. Football post-World War One in Hungary wasn't one of particularly high quality, yet there was a feeling from those within the game and in government that with the right investment and innovation, football could be revamped to improve morale at home and national status abroad. That plan worked, and then over the next 40 years, Hungarian coaches were at the envy of countries around the world. They were quite simply trailblazers. One of those coaches was Erno Erbstein, and I'm delighted to tell you that we have the author of Erbstein, The Triumph and Tragedy of Football's Forgotten Pioneer with us today. Welcome to the show, Dominic Bliss. Hi, thanks very much, Tom. Um, of course, we'll have to wait and see whether Hungarian football will improve uh, under this government and Orban and all of his expenses. But Dominic, would you be able to tell us a little bit about Erbstein and the legacy that he left on world football? Yeah, sure. Um, Erbstein was um, one of the most important coaches of all those Hungarian and Austrians that went to Serie A in the interwar years and helped to develop Italian football at a time when Italy was um, growing into a superpower that eventually won the World Cup twice in the 30s. Um, a lot of the guys that helped them to develop their game were from Central Europe and um, in particular Hungary. Now, Erbstein went out there at the same time as Arpad Weiss, who many people might know, won Serie A with Bologna and Inter um, before um, he, he died in the Holocaust at Auschwitz. And Erbstein was also of Jewish descent. And um, when he went to Italy, he first uh, played a couple of, for a couple of teams in the lower leagues. Um, one was called Olympia Fiume, which is now Rijeka, who playing the Croatian league, sort of tells you a bit about changing borders. Um, and the others were uh, Vicenza, um, actually, that was it in Italy. And then he, he fell foul of, the, of Mussolini's ban of um, foreign players in Italy. So he, at a young age, became a coach. Um, and he worked his way up. He worked at Bari, Cagliari, Nocerina, earned a couple of promotions for those teams and was given the job at Lucchese in Tuscany, which is uh, you know, a really lower, uh, lesser-known lower league team in, in Italy now. But at the time, they were seen as a, a former Serie A club that had fallen down into the regional leagues and kind of faded glory. Uh, so Erbstein went there and he got them promoted twice in three years um, to Serie A. And then they finished seventh in Serie A, joint with Inter, uh, above Roma and Fiorentina. And Erbstein effectively became the most famous coach in Italy because of what he'd achieved there and was given the Torino job by this young, ambitious, driven president called Ferruccio Novo. This was in 1938, and he wanted to turn Torino into the top team in Italy, the sort of Arsenal of Italy, in that Herbert Chapman at Arsenal had organised the club and structured the club so that it had proper fitness training sessions. They adhered to dietary plans, they did aerobics, and they had a transfer policy and a scouting. And, you know, they were the first club in England to really be organised, and they dominated English football. Um, Torino felt they could be that in Italy and they felt that Erbstein was the, the equivalent figure to do that. 
So he moved to Torino to do that, but before the season was even halfway old, when they were top of the league, uh, he was forced to leave the country as a foreign Jew because the manifesto of race was passed. Um, and um, as a result, uh, he had to leave and abandon that project. Um, going back to, uh, via a long circuitous route, he went back to Budapest in the end because he couldn't safely arrive in Holland where he hoped to go and work um, due to the fact that he'd have to have travelled through Nazi Germany to get there. Um, so when he arrived back in Budapest, he kept in contact with Torino for the first few years um, via telephone and letter, and even reportedly went back to Turin, um, sorry, back to Italy to do some scouting missions at other clubs to look for players for Torino that that they felt they might sign and might improve the club. So he was kind of managing them from afar during the war um, until Hungary was under pressure from the Nazi government. Uh, commanded to round up the Jewish population and um, send them to concentration camps and labour camps. So um, Herbstein survived the, the Holocaust. He and Bela Gutmann, the great Hungarian manager, another Hungarian Jewish manager, uh, they escaped a labour camp together, would you believe, um, and both went on to enjoy incredibly fruitful managerial careers after the war. Um, Erbstein and his entire family survived, which is, well, his nuclear family, I should say, so his two daughters and his wife survived, and um, they moved back to Italy. He was given his old job at Torino back eventually. He went there initially as a sporting director above the coach, but every coach who followed him said that they felt they were working in his shadow, that the, the president really wanted to have Erbstein back at the helm. And uh, it just so happened that during that period, uh, Torino dominated Serie A. They won five titles in a row in the, in the 40s under his guidance with the team that he'd built and using the tactics that he developed. And uh, he eventually was on the same plane back from an away game, which was a testimonial game in Lisbon against Benfica. But the crash, the plane crashed into the Superga Hill that overlooks Torino, the city, and uh, everyone on board was killed. So the, the best team in Italy, arguably the best team on mainland Europe, uh, was wiped out in a plane crash, including their manager, Erbstein, the great Hungarian coach. So that's his legacy, a remarkable legacy, but it was kind of forgotten over the years, partly because in Italy they mourned the team as a whole. That team was the Italy team as well as the Torino team. And so the players were mourned more uh, memorably, I suppose, because they were the figures that everyone saw on the pitch, that everyone fell in love with, uh, understandably so. Um, the manager was, was kind of forgotten a bit. And in Hungary, Erbstein was, his legacy fell victim to the fact that it was a Soviet-installed Soviet government there for many of the years. Um, and he kind of represented a previous era um, so he wasn't really remembered there and it's only recently that I discovered the story and I decided to write the biography of this guy because I thought it was incredible. Um, it's now come out in uh, Hungary as well, in Hungary, and uh, the response in Budapest has been uh, really quite incredible. I've been really pleased to see how people have taken to the story out there. Yeah, it is utterly it is magnificent and especially well researched as well um it reads it reads a lot like a novel to be honest because the, the the story is so 
so incredible, especially the um, the chapters in the middle where you talk about the Holocaust and stuff and how how close he was to to dying on more than one occasion, um, especially when he was in Germany and then and back in Hungary as well. Like you you said that he was almost like a day away at one point um, from 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 falling foul of the of the Germans. Um, uh, for the book as well, you you actually spoke to his daughters. Um, they were obviously truly incre- incredible people. Hmm. Yeah, they're both in their um, well late eighties and early nineties when I spoke to them. Uh, Susanna Egri, his eldest daughter, is a remarkable woman. She's a famous ballerina in Italy, uh, well around Europe actually. A pre- she was a prima ballerina, and uh, much of the the contacts that they use to um, to help them survive, you know, for people to hide them, for people to give them essential work. These are the ways that people avoided um, being put onto the trains to uh, concentration camps. Much of the contacts they used were hers, um, as well as her father's, obviously through football. Um, she, so she was already in her teens at that time, a, a famed ballerina, and she went on after the war to achieve great things as a choreographer as well as a dancer. Um, so to meet her was quite something. She um, she's kind of kept this story uh, going over the years. She's done many interviews in Italy, telling her father's story, and uh, she was more than willing to help out with the book as well. Um, and uh, his his youngest daughter Marta has done a lot less media over the years. In fact, I couldn't find any examples of her speaking, but I got an address for her and wrote to her, and she was very kind with her time as well. Um, she's a a psychotherapist actually and so uh, she had some incredible insight into uh, her father and, and, and what he was like as a character and uh, speaking to both of them was I mean whenever you speak to a Holocaust survivor which anyone who's been uh, fortunate enough to to, to to gain from that first-hand experience and understanding of what these people went through the fortitude they had is always an incredible experience but to speak to two, two women who uh, were bonded by you know, familial bonds to one of the greatest football managers of all time, it's quite remarkable to, to switch from hearing about this uh, superb sporting story and then suddenly you're, you're talking about one of the darkest periods of history, a story of survival. And it, it's really hard to switch from one to the other. It's a very difficult subject to bring up when and I was researching this book in my late 20s and I was talking to these experienced women who've been through these dreadful times. Uh, you have to be very wary of how you bring subjects up and how you ask questions. So, yeah, I, I learned a lot from it and um, I'm really pleased to have met these, these people who, who helped me so much to promote the book afterwards as well uh, and kind of welcomed me into their circle as well. You know, when we were in promoting the book in Budapest, they took me to dinner, they were introduced me to their family, and they were moved by the fact that their father's story, at such a late stage in their lives, their father's story was finally reaching a wider audience, and it affected me to see how important it was to them. So yeah, that was, that was probably one of the most um, enjoyable, albeit emotional, parts of the, the journey I've been on trying to tell this story. And, it, and for them, it, it's so special for to almost be like a close to their chapter as well. And to see the book doing so well, um, 
it must be really quite special for them. Obviously, we have spoken about the book in the past before, um, but since its publication, I think three or four years ago now, do you want to just tell the listeners what exactly has happened? I think the most remarkable part of the story, I keep saying remarkable, I need to stop doing that. Uh, <laughs> the most enjoyable uh, follow-up story for me has come from Budapest. So when the book came out in Hungary, within um, probably just under a year, I received an email from a guy called Bertalan Molnar, who, along with several friends, had read the book, been inspired by Erbstein to reform the team that Erbstein played for when he was a young man. He played for a team called BAK, or B-A-K, uh, Budapest Athletic Eye Club. And uh, my pronunciation's appalling there, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, uh, they, they went out of business or dissolved in 1947, shortly before the Soviet era, or shortly after, I, I don't know, began uh, to get its claws into the Hungarian government. And um, they, they, they disappeared. So, but they were a former top flight club who had once been Hungarian cup finalists. And it was uh, a chance, they thought, to, to resurrect this team 70 years on, or just over 70 years on, in honor of Erbstein's story. So, yeah, Erbstein was a forgotten story and Bok was a forgotten club and they were both part of the same chapter in Hungarian football history. So they've started this club and they are in the sixth tier of Hungarian football, uh, strictly amateur, and they are enjoying every second of it. We went out there to see them, my wife and I, and uh, we went with a friend of mine who's an official at Corinthian Casuals, my local non-league team, who of course have this great uh, history as well. So people who don't know, they're, a, they're an amalgamation of Corinthians and Casuals, two of the most important teams in the growth of early football in England. Uh, they were once the best team in England and uh, they now play in the Bostic Premier League. Now, they, in 1904, toured Budapest and they sort of in a way, they were there to show the Hungarians how to play football at a time when it was new in, in, in Hungary. They, they played against the MTK, first of all, and beat them 6-0. Then they played Budapest TC, beat them 9-0. Then they played the Magyar Athletic Eye Club and beat them 12-0. Um, and everyone considered them to be this great, this great football power that had come over just to almost to, to teach people how to play. It was all done in great spirits. And... As part of that, they donated a, a, a solid silver trophy called the Corinthian Cup to the amateur clubs of Budapest and said, you know, play for this Challenge Cup every year to help develop the game over there. Um, and BAK or Buck were uh, one of the teams that played in the first ever Corinthian Cup tie. They played against Berenge Barracks. Um, so we went That's out amazing, there. Amazing, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so we went out there to tie up this this great historical circle you know Bok had reformed as a result of a book coming out that I'd written and <laughs> my my local team who I volunteer at actually had this incredible history with the original Bok so we went out there together we formed a friendship between these two clubs one from South London one from Budapest and we are now in talks about um, inaugurating a uh, a competition called the uh, Egri Erbstein Tournament. 
uh, for which the Corinthian casuals will bring a new trophy in a symbolic gesture, like the original Corinthians brought the Corinthian cup. Um, only on this occasion, we're doing so in the knowledge that 50 years after Corinthians went out there to teach the Hungarians how to play football, the Hungarians came to Wembley and taught the English how to play football. <laughs> so there's this great cyclical story uh, in so many ways, the intertwined history of these clubs. Uh, they share amateur status and uh, their intention is to play a four-team tournament to invite two other amateur clubs from Europe, one from Hungary, another from another European country. Um, and to celebrate the legacy of Erbstein, the reformation of Bok, the friendship between these two clubs, and the idea that even in this age of uh, professional football reaching a great peaks uh, in the elite, at the elite level, to celebrate the fact that some amateur clubs still have a wonderful supporter base and uh, wonderful stories to tell and their players enjoy playing football for the fun of it. So uh, we're hoping we can get uh, a nice stadium in Hungary. We can get some fans from uh, all around Budapest to come and watch these great games and, and maybe people will travel with the clubs that are, that are competing as well. It could be a celebration of, uh, of these ridiculously uh, intertwining narratives that we somehow discovered uh, and we thought we can't let this be lost. You know, so many amateur clubs just exist in a small bubble locally, um, but there are so many different connections to be made around Europe and, and why not do that? We can look back to history, but we can also look to the future and try and grow something special. So, yeah, with optimism, we're going into this project to try and uh, develop something special between uh, Budapest and London, between Bok and Corinthian Casuals, but also a pan-European tournament. That, yeah, that is just so cool. And Hungarian football, for those that don't know, has, has a real rich history, like English football, with amateur football as well. Um, a lot of the villagers um, in the past, not even that long ago, 20, 30 years, and, and still today in some areas, get huge crowds of up to about a thousand at, at big local derby games so there is a real rich history of amateur football and to be able to tap back into that when it's waning like 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 amateur football is in England is, is a really cool thing as a player what was Erdstein like because the because as a as a, yeah, a manager he was kind of philosophical almost Guardiola-esque but yeah. from the book it felt to me like as a player it was a bit like a almost like a Lee Catamore type or Diego Costa or something <laughs> yes, like that. He was like really played with a bit of a chip on his shoulder, which may be rightly put there. Yeah, he, um, he, he, yeah, he, as you say, developed into a coach that evolved, uh, the helped the evolution rather of the Hungarian style of the 50s, which obviously then influenced the Dutch uh, Cruyff uh, era and the Barcelona story. Um, but as a as a player, he was a, a hard man. Um, he had a great he he had a great set piece delivery on him and a long pass, and uh, he was celebrated for that. So he had some technique, but uh, he yeah he was known for hard challenges and for putting his boot in. And I think that's because he had to protect himself. You know, he was um, I think there were a lot more middle class or bourgeois footballers in those days. So I don't think it was entirely unusual. But he, he was a, an accountant, and I think that probably 
he was of a slightly different background to some of the other players that he might have been in with. And maybe he was overcompensating or maybe he was forced to defend himself because people thought he was soft. Um, but he had also, don't forget, he'd grown up. He made his debut as a footballer in the same year that he graduated from school and the same year that he joined the Habsburg army and went to war as a captain in the First World War. Wow. So, you know, if you're an officer in the, in the First World War and then you come back to play football, you're going to be toughened. You're going to and and you're going to be a leader. And I think that kind of roll your sleeves up physicality was much more common in football back then. Um, so there were one or two occasions where he, he got some bad press, though, where he went in with, um, I think he, he he sort of leapt into a challenge and ended up going in with with his studs into a guy's midriff, and um, the guy was seriously injured. The referee didn't send Erbstein from the field of play. It wouldn't have been a red card in those days. He didn't have cards, but he could have sent him from the field of play. But uh, apparently a policeman came on and tried to arrest Erbstein <laughs> and, um, for assault. And it emerged later that the policeman was the injured player's brother. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, there were, there were stories like this. There were one or two others, but the press did seem to go after him a bit. And I wonder whether they exaggerated his physical play because... You know, there was there was a, 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 a huge growth of anti-Semitism, a huge spike in anti-Semitism after the First World War because there were revolutionary attempts from the, from the centre-left and then the far-left. And a lot of people tried to attach the far-left to, um, you know, a lack of patriotism. And they also tried to attach the far-left to uh, Jewishness. And so there was this kind of bollocks, basically, that... that that Jewish people were involved in um, unpatriotic acts and far-left acts. And I think Erbstein was involved in the centre-left revolution, but that was like a social democratic one. He wasn't involved in the communist revolution that failed ultimately. Um, he was he was a patriot, a Hungarian patriot. And uh, as, as you can tell by the fact that he served as an officer in the, in the First World War. Um, and his daughters told me he was a proud Hungarian. So um, I think I think he was probably he felt like he had to make a show in in some way to show people that he was just like everyone else, which is terrible that he felt that if he did feel that way, it might have just been that I'm reading too much into it, Tom, and actually he was just a massive hard man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what can you tell a hundred years on? But um, yeah. only we can only read into history what what we know from from. Uh, what's being written so so yeah I don't know for sure but there was certainly more to his life than I could ever know and I'm sure things will continue to to evolve in the story of Erbstein I put it down on paper for the first time but even between it coming out in English and Hungarian we made a lot of revisions and um, it's now coming out in uh, in Italian this year so I'm, I'm, I'm expecting to be corrected a million times by um, people who know better over there as well which I'm open to because yeah, it's great. Isn't trying it? To, we're trying to tell this story that's been buried, and yeah. uh, every every little uh, piece of information that helps us to uh, finesse the story and get it right is better. Let's let's tell Herbstein's story, and that's kind of why we want to. Uh, that's why Bock were inspired to reform. All these guys were were inspired to reform Bock because they thought that um, more more football fans in Budapest, certainly those historically minded would be interested in that story uh, if the club was was alive again as well. Um, so, 
yeah, there was there, there were definitely things happening, and it's great to write a book and for it to impact on on the real world. So yeah. I'm quite excited by what's in in store because their um their aims are really noble. They said to me that they have already formed only the second blind team in uh, Hungary. So there's a team called Lass, who are the first Hungarian blind squad, and uh, Bok are the second now. And they've already played a game of blind football where they uh, played against first-team players from the two clubs who were blindfolded to play alongside them. So they're doing some really good things out there, and it's exciting. Like The book almost has come around just at the right time, because you can imagine if, if you'd have written it in 20, maybe even just 10 years later, it could have could you would never have found the information that you did find really it's it's, it's almost like a little bit of luck that you you were able to find this story at just the right time i don't think there were um digitalized archives up until very recently so anyone who tried to tell the Herbstein story before would have been either trilingual and in the rarest of ra- rarest of ways someone who could speak hungarian italian and english yeah uh, or they would have um, had to spend a long time in libraries in those uh, those countries. Not to mention that Erbstein had uh, some time in the USA as well. And I was able to write off to newspapers in all these countries and, and ask for archive material, ask for searches to be done. But I was also able to access electronic archives and, um, you know, using the Italian I have, I was able to translate those ones and volunteers helped me so much with the Hungarian stuff um, so that I was able to piece together his lifestyle. But yeah, technology's helped me there. And yeah, who knows what's going to be shut away in the next 10, 20 years? Who knows how many people who were right at the end of their lives won't, you know, wouldn't have been able to tell me what they were. So yeah, it was a period of a time where the people who were young during Herbstein's life were able to still tell me what they remembered and where technology enabled me to look at the, the really old stuff and the, the primary sources uh, to use a historical term. Speaking of that America thing it's one of the, the best things I find from the book was how much historical interest there was like in America you spoke about how loads of British players used to go to America because it was it was they had more money there like almost like people do go to China now like I loved I loved that how much history was in there so, so for like anyone who hasn't read the book and they love their hunger um they just love their football history it is really amazing like how much de- detail you go into um within like about Jewish people back in the 20s and 30s about Italian football in the 40s and fifth, um in the 30s and 40s it is amazing I, I love that part I had to make, sorry, I had to make a decision really early on as to whether I was going to tell Herbstein's story and tell the, you know, quote unquote exciting bits, you know, say he survived the Holocaust, he was, he went to war and he played, uh, sorry, he managed the great, the Grande Torino, the great team in Italian history that died in a plane crash. Do I just tell the the rest of it in a shell, you know, over a few pages and then build in the rest of it? And I thought, no, actually, I've had so much fun researching the context of this book, Mm. historical and football, that I'm going to include a a good amount of that research in the book. 
And um, yes, yeah, some people have welcomed that and some people haven't, but I, 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 I'm really proud of it because like you say, I, I discovered that the American League was a, in the 20s akin to the China, Chinese League now, that the ASL, as it was the American Soccer League, was bigger than MLS and they were close to matching um, college football crowds and things like this. They got they got tens of thousands of people going to things like Brooklyn Wanderers and uh, Bethlehem Steel was another team and these great sort of uh, uh, in industrial team names because of the era they were playing in. But they were paying big money to guys from Scotland, Ireland and England. And then they discovered that Central Europe had this incredible passing game uh, as opposed to a long ball game with the British. And they invited teams from Central Europe to tour, knowing that there was a huge Jewish population on the east coast of the States. Erstein was invited to captain a team called the Maccabees. And they went on tour out there and everyone was in, you know, in raptures at this passing game they were playing. Um, and Erbstein equally was surprised by how effective inferior players could be when they hit the channels and hit the, hit the right long balls and put people under pressure, especially on bad pitches. And he wrote a column later in his career in Italy when he was managing Bari, who were one of the worst teams in Serie A when he took the job. Uh, or the prima divisione, as it was the year before Serie A began. Um, and he decided to adopt some of those balls into the channel and playing the powerful pacey guy up front, chasing onto them behind the defence. And he got some results against bigger clubs playing this way. He, wrote, he was asked to write a column about this new kind of counter-attacking direct style, and he said he learned it in the USA. So... It, yeah, it was it was an ideas exchange back then, but not not one not one that, that technology had any part in. It was just experience, mm. travel, and um, it's great to hit to to understand how football developed, not unilaterally in one place. It wasn't like there was a Hungarian style and that was it. There was an Italian style and that was it. In the twenties and thirties, people were going from one to the other, and learning and then bringing it back. And it was only the British really who didn't bother learning anything. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, it was, it was fantastic to learn about that era, to understand that era, and to understand how Italian football basically took huge leaps forward because of the foreign imports, and then banned them all because they reached a, they've reached a point where they thought, right, we've learned what we can learn now. You can all stay as coaches, but we're not having any foreign players. They had all these great foreign coaches teaching these grand ideas but to entirely Italian teams, and they won the World Cup twice. Yeah. So it tells you that fascism, nationalism, played a huge part in Italy's success in the 30s as well. And this stuff is it's vital, really, because so many people say, oh, have you heard of Pozzo's Italy? Have you, you know, they, won the, they had the Piola, they had Miazza, they had these great players. You think, well, yeah, but what about the part Hungary played in Italy's success? You know? <laughs> mm. It's quite, quite remarkable. There's that word again. <laughs> yeah, it's it is though. It is it's an incredible story. Um going back to back <laughs> back to back. Um what what's gonna happen now? Um do you have like any specific ambitions? Do you wanna kind of get to the third tier or or I think if they could they would. Um yeah. their their ambition this season, because it's their first, is to consolidate themselves in the sixth tier that they're in. So BLSZ three and they're <coughs> in group three of that um so 
their aim this season, they there's one there's one tier below them, a seventh tier, which actually incidentally has two or three really historic clubs in itself um, that played in the top flight during Herbstein's era, MAC being one of them, and BEAC being the other. But uh, yeah, they're in the sixth tier bulk, and they took over from a team called Respect, who they took the team on, uh, who were more than happy to become bulk to gain this historical name and they took on the kit colours and the logo and um, this season their aim was to consolidate and they're in mid-table just above mid-table so they're happy with that but their ultimate aim is to become like Corinthian Casuals in England the best run amateur club in the country so it's a lofty ambition um, and if they can get there then all power to them but they'll take it a step at a time and this tournament this summer is going to help bring some attention on them and and hopefully people, when they're visiting Budapest, because I know a lot of British people go out there who love their football. You know, there'll only be 20 people at the game, but it's so worth going and sitting on the wooden benches uh, where they play um, and and watching. You can you can follow them on Twitter if you want to know where their stadium is, because I can't pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> they're at Budapest, the AK, on Twitter. And, um, yeah, they, they're, they're hoping that people will go and, will go and see a bit of... Uh, grassroots football in Budapest while they're out there go and follow Buck and over the years maybe they'll they'll get to a level where you go and watch them for the football not just for the experience as well so cool that's so cool um yeah for anyone who hasn't read the book please go and read it um, it is amazing um and we've also done a previous podcast where we spoke to Dominic um in a little bit more more about the Torino side and stuff um Dominic thanks for a lot for coming on the show um, where can we buy your book? You can buy my book uh, on the Blizzard website. So if you know the Blizzard, the foot, quarterly football journal, um, on their shop, you can buy my book. Uh, I won't read out the really long URL, but if you Google Herbstein Dominic Bliss, it's the one on the Blizzard page. Uh, or you can buy it on Kindle or on Amazon. Uh, and if you do, please leave a review because it helps other people find it. <laughs> Cool. We'll put a um, a link to it on our Twitter account as well. Um, thanks, thanks a lot for coming on, Dominic. No problem. Cheers, Tom. <laughs>